real good. This meeting is being live streamed. What's up, everybody? There's nobody listening at this point, but it's uh, <laughs> 10. That's. <laughs> It's uh, Value After Hours. I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is Bill Brewster and Jake Taylor. What's happening, fellas? The mouse is running. Yes, it is. Well, I've, I, I upgraded the computer to... Uh, mm. Oh, we can tell. It, it sounds like... <laughs> yeah, it, now it, it works. Yeah. Now it works it on the like it's third cooking. try instead of the fifth try. We've <laughs> <laughs> got the Gulf of Mexico and Townsville. Massachusetts first in the house. There we go. Halifax, Kathmandu, no way. What's the haps in Florida, Billy? Just hanging out, you know. I was down in a, a Miami boat show. Oh, my buddy bought a, a boat, a twenty-five foot contender, uh, like a two hundred fifty thousand dollar discretionary purchase. Has to wait fifteen months to get it, and they're delivering one a week. So some recession. Holy cow! What's the what kind of boat is that then? I don't know. I'm not. It's like a center console. It's a fish slayer. Hmm. They are they are like made to kill fish. It's a pretty cool boat, but there's like no there's no seats or anything like fish that. Fish apocalypse. Yeah, yeah. So it's not the kind of boat that I would be getting. Can you? Watch I like the, the fish or anything but... behind it. Uh yeah, you can. Yeah, you just can't like sit and enjoy it with your wife. I think that's the one thing that you can't do. And that's why do. he wanted it. <laughs> yeah, perhaps, perhaps. I don't know. But he sold his last one for more than he bought it for. So just just buy uh buy new boats. You can't can't lose money. Can't lose. That's 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 that is investment advice. <laughs> that's right. So put a lot in a car too while you're at it. Jeez. Uh how's everybody feel about this market? Me. I don't know. I have no market feelings. Kind of, kind of boring right now. A little bit, isn't it? Kind of choppy. Bit exciting today. What's I happening look, today? I looked at the uh, down. I looked at bit. my little Morningstar panel. Yeah, how's it going? Uh, it was it was gnarly. There's a <laughs> down huh? down more than two percent across uh, the uh, little squares that I care about, small and value. Uh, not great, Bob. Oh, yeah, national real estate prices. Yeah, you know, I'm spending a lot of time going down some um, rabbit holes there. A couple of shout outs. Hofstein's on. Yeah, it's uh, Hofstein's. What up, Hofstein? Chaff. A look here. Impending dad. I saw oh, yeah. Tesla-ville. Samson's on. Jim Hamilton, what's up? Yeah, I, I have been going down some rabbit holes on that, on that real estate. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I appreciate that I'm feeding my bias when I look at that stuff, but it does seem to me that the data's, I think it's like a 2007, 8, 9 style real estate crash anyway. Really? That much? Coming. Yeah, I think so. Coming. Wow. Interesting. We're going down I, faster than we were in 2008. I just think, I think, I think if, if this is the view, I think you got to have cash. I know that you're not supposed to market time. I know that I make fun of market timing, but I honestly think if this is the call, go to cash. Cash is trash. Haven't you heard that? Not when everything is a illiquidity pocket. That's when you want it the most. And I, I don't. What, what's yeah. the probability that any asset that you're selling that's quality right now, you look at in the future and you say, "Boy, that was the worst decision of my my life to sell that asset." 
are you saying that the upside downside from here is not doesn't feel as as favorable as at other times in history? I think if your view is that housing is going to go down a bunch and you're worried about the last leg of a bear market down, like if you want to change your wealth, uh, like that sounds like the time to try to change your wealth. Mm. I, I don't know. I mean, you got to do something different than what people do, right? And I don't think that staying long any type of beta is going to is going to save you cuz in that scenario, theoretically, credit spread should blow out and the equity risk premium should increase and nobody's you're basically going to have four sellers. So if if that's the call, like liquidity is the way to win. And then you actually get a step function, and then you can never worry about this again. Well, here's the thing, right? So actually, <laughs> you know, the, the ten years over five percent, right? The ten years over five percent. Am I making that up? That's what I thought. I thought we'd got to. Is it that high? I thought the ten year. Thought it was two, yeah. maybe wasn't. No, it's, what's what, the yield the curve? Two years. That's like? almost four. Three point nine four seven. Okay, no. four. It's interesting. In October, two at the, years at four the low, seven. Yeah, it was a bit higher in October at the low, but it's sort of October and low. It got to four point two, and then it's come back a little bit from there. Six months four eight, which is, you know, rationally discounting. You should be paying a little bit more than you were in October two thousand two thousand twenty two. I guess. How do you square? 90th percentile value spreads with <laughs> with cash such a hard one well that's the that's the you know that's the 2000 was clearly that was the time when if you're looking at market level indicators you miss you, you miss the the giant trade in value and i don't think that's a good idea i think value is clearly very cheap but what composition of that basket you know there's a lot of oil and gas in there and oil and gas has been a drag recently but I still think I don't know. Energy underinvested. What what does capital return say about that? Well, it says you gotta. It says you gotta be right longer than the market thinks that you need to be right for. Like that, I don't think that that's a sufficient answer to think the equity is going to work. I think you have to be more right than the market. I think it's like anything. But like, I mean, if people are losing so much money on their house, like, I, I don't know, I find it hard to think that oil demand is going to stick. But I haven't done any research on how sticky oil demand was through 2008. I saw a stat today, which I thought was interesting. It said that um, I retweeted it. Price was pretty different, though, too. I mean, 2008, you had, I think we got up to like $150 a barrel. Something yeah, I mean... Forever oil has underperformed. Uh, yeah, I don't know. You think? Maybe I mean, this, this might be an edge. This might be a, an oil energy uh, derivative. But TSA offices screened two point five million people at airport checkpoints yesterday. That's a lot of violations. <laughs> yeah, four years ago on the same day, so pre-pandemic, it was two point three million. So it's up, you know, not quite a couple of hundred thousand, but that's a material amount. Well, well, we can get into some of this stuff. Uh, my segment today is is very inflation based, so we can. I think we'll. It ties in with uh, some of this. It feels like people stop talking about inflation a little bit, doesn't it? Perhaps it's not such a hot topic on Twitter anymore. Anyway, is that right? I think it's so. 
transfer. I find, actually, I find, I find that whatever changes they've made to Twitter, I find it a little bit harder to use these days, noticeably over the last few months. And you mean harder to use, you mean not very interesting? Yeah. Yeah. I can't get enough information out of it. I agree. I don't know if it's like that because they've the, the the algorithm favors the the threads, which is a um, terrible. Yeah, just, rather than like just the tweets yeah. of information, so people do a lot of threads rather than a lot of one-off tweets. Barf, which I have was, got information in them. Yeah, looks like oil was pretty pretty stable through that through time. Eight. Yeah, more or less stable high though, right? Stable, stable. Stable higher than today. Uh, stable, you know, like it came down a little. I guess in 07, it was 86 and 0.3 million barrels a day. In 2009, it was 84.3 million barrels a day. That's like pretty stable. All right. I don't know how tight you need it. I, I guess, you know, the question that Will Thompson has asked me a number of times uh, is like to anyone that's like, well, oil is going higher. It seems to me that, uh, you know, playing it in the futures market, if you have like this really strong uh, view on oil price is a smarter, smarter path than uh, doing it in the equity market. That's not investment advice. By the way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can get it levered. And, uh, you know, yeah. if you're right, you're what actually about right. ETF? Probably better. I mean, ETF, right? I don't know anything. 3X about bull how... oil. Yeah, that seems bad. Yeah. There used to be plenty of like, there were little videos that used to do the rounds. This is a long time ago now, but they were all like, this is 20 plus years ago of like the futures traders, guys used to trade oil and stuff like that. And basically, the, you'd watch an hour and a half of this guy trading and doing well. And then at the end, he was always vaporized. Is that right? Sounds about right. Yeah. Traded too big. And then it's all she wrote. Having a bad day. And then bad day gets worse. And six months later, they're gone. Good way to do it in options too. All that leverage, you, yeah. Yeah. If you trade in options, remember you got to be right on the underlying and the option. It's uh not the easiest game. The only thing worse are the FX guys trading, you know, hundred times leverage for for currencies. <laughs> At least it doesn't move like Munger. for the most part. Yeah. yeah Munger let's said. talk about Daily Journal. Munger made a mistake with Alibaba. Do you think that was a shock to everybody? But then he said it was because it was a retailer, not because CCP. I think we sort of got to the point that you could, it was very, very cheap, but CCP was the limiting factor, right? It wasn't because it was quote unquote, goddamn retail business still. <laughs> retail business. <laughs> yeah. Come on. I mean, I've, I find it interesting how, how rarely Munger talks about valuation. It, it is like the very last output of his process. Uh, you know, that's, that's he's, odd. He's now, is it, Buffett. Yeah. I mean, it, but some would argue that Buffett's lucky that he met Munger. Right. I mean, I, I don't know. Is, is this because we've Munger's just seen, Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, you're probably right. But you know, Charlie probably would have been fairly successful in real estate anyway. I doubt I, you know, I mean, but then you could say, well, he'd just be long levered. LA real estate and any monkey that was living through the time that he was living would have been as rich and his he's just a quality factor bet. Which is possible. I mean, I think the thing no that, way. No way he'd be as rich with that path than the Berkshire path. 
Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. It's that wasn't going up twenty percent a year like Berkshire was for decades. Yeah, I, I mean, still you get a little leverage in real estate, yeah. provo- you know, and he clearly likes leverage, so he got he would have had a little leverage. Whether he's seventy five LTV, you're <laughs> refining it out all the time. You never pay cash, and you can ten thirty one it over fifty years of LA real estate. If you own the best real estate in LA, which probably would be his strategy. I bet you're not poor. No, no, you're not poor, but I don't think you can get to the same compounding that, that you got with Berkshire. Just what did you guys imagine. take away from what he said? What was the big <laughs> the big takeaway? Oh, well, several. there were some, some colorful uh, descriptions of, of merger arb and workouts uh, <laughs> that he called. And so I'm, but before I get canceled, I'm just going to say that this is what he said. And in fact, he was saying what, what Benjamin Graham called them, uh, which was called them Jewish T-bills. Jesus. Yeah. Well, he did say that racism's gotten better. So, yeah. so uh, we're, we're moving. Can't expect a 99-year-old white man to be uh, too politically correct all the time. The past is a, is a foreign country, right? So this, is, this was a long time ago when... Yeah, I mean, I I don't. Do I really. Well, he doesn't you mean love it. Crypto shit, as he called it, or crypto <laughs> crapo. He had a couple other colorful names for it. Turns out he might have been somewhat right about most of that stuff. Seems like. Yeah, there were definitely scams. I I have no idea. I, I think, uh, I mean, I, I think, you know, it's interesting to me that he's still holding boy or BYD and he's still holding Costco. It's interesting to me that he doesn't, uh, I mean, he trimmed BYD. Uh, you know, he he made a case that uh, what Daily Journal was not particularly expensive, but he's not going to go out and buy it. I, I, I mean, honestly, my biggest takeaway from him is he thinks 95% of asset managers are delusional. He thinks that it's a waste of people's resources. And he never talks about valuation. Like that, that as someone that listens to Munger, uh, you know, I, I would feel bad if I didn't listen to that and, and look in the mirror and I still thought that I was the one that should outperform. Uh, I, I came away saying, I'm probably delusional. He also said, "Don't exercise and continue to eat peanut butter <laughs> to live to 99." So, you know, some yeah, but of this I, is survivorship bias. Yeah. Well, his—I mean, his area of expertise is not. I don't go to him for exercise advice, nor would I go to him for marriage advice. He's stayed married, has he? Yeah, you know, he's one for two. Yeah, to the right woman. I pretty mean, long, pretty long run, well, with the second one. Yeah, well, she married a rich guy that she knew just wanted to read all day. And I doubt that the uh, facts changed much since the they dream. got married. Yeah. yeah. I think she lived until like, well, I think 2011 or something. I don't, you don't really hear much. I don't remember him talking about it or it didn't come up at the Berkshire meetings, but yeah, it's kind of probably weird. because he loves one person and it's him. You think Munger loves only himself? That's what you're saying? I, I don't think that, uh, yeah, I, I think that, uh, I, I don't think Munger only loves himself. I wouldn't say it that way. I don't think that Munger is the type of personality that is going to credit much of his success to uh, his wife. And I, and I think that some of the reason that I say that is, you know, if you say my kids would think of me as a book with two legs sticking out, to me, 
that's not saying I'm someone who prioritizes family time. That's saying I'm someone who prioritizes me. Yeah, that's fair. I, uh, I, I don't think I was the credit part talking so much, but more like just nobody asked him about it at the, at the meetings. Like it's hey, also man, never come up. He Munger, brings you, up things you, he wants doing to, okay. <laughs> well, he brings up things he wants to bring up often. Yeah. And he'll punt on anything he doesn't want to talk about. No. <clears throat> I thought it was a great meeting though. I thought he was, uh, as about as spry as I've seen him in, in a decade. And he seemed to be I, like, I loved hearing the old stories of him and Garen getting into shenanigans. I mean, all of it was great. I thought it, I really enjoyed it. I mean, what, what do you take from it? Like, what, what do you take from him not selling expensive things and not talking about valuation at all? Uh, I think that there are that, you know, the way that, the way that Buffett and Munger run their portfolios is largely this sort of industrialist approach where you're not really trading in and out. You're trying to find things where ultimately it's the long-term flows that they generate, which is why they've been, Buffett in particular, has been an acquirer and a holder rather than a trader because that re reduces your tax drag. Fewer decisions that you have to make changes the way you analyze positions as they go into the portfolio. I think Buffett is very, very focused on the valuation and he's trying to buy at a sufficient discount to that to give himself a margin of safety. There's nothing new in that. Everybody knows that. But Didn't I think he add to saying, Apple here? I don't know. I'm not sure. I thought I saw that. Conceivable. You don't know when it happened. Like if he was adding in October, that might have made sense. Well, I guess. I mean, I, yeah, maybe. When you look at what is predictive, like there is, there's a lot of luck and beta just in holding pretty good stocks, enough of them over a long enough period of time. But if you're looking for predictive stuff, like it's very hard to find anything that's predictive outside of five years. Moats get crossed, valuations don't matter. Inside five years, it's value and it becomes increasingly less relevant as you get to the end of the five years. But there's nothing really predictive like as a, as a metric that goes on much further than that. So I find... I find, you know, the work that they do is it's some, in some ways it's sort of, um, it's unfathomable how they, it's unfathomable how Buffett is getting it so right other than the fact that he has studied the economy so closely and he's so aware of what's happening in it that he's got a better overview of than almost anybody else. And by virtue of the fact that he's getting data from, you know, the railways and all the other businesses too. So I think he's got... I don't know if it's, I wouldn't call it inside information, but he's just aware of it and filing it away. I don't think it's macro stuff, actually. I think it's there. It's been much more understanding unit economics and microeconomics of businesses that, and, and looking at, at this point, probably tens of thousands of businesses over this entire thing and identifying a handful of them that have something about this business that allows them to earn more than they should. Uh, theoretically, in a you know hyper competitive world, um, for a long period of time, and recognizing those this tiny, tiny, vanishingly small sliver of them have these advantages, and and then just being willing to hold those for a really long time, and and earning what the business earns, not uh, which Buffett would call investing, and then you know the other side he would call speculation, which would be you know hoping to get a higher price for it later from someone else. To be fair, though, he's often buying these things. I agree with that, by the way. But, but he's also he's also buying these things, like say BNSF. He buys that when 
it's just primed to return a whole lot of capital. So he buys it and de-risks it almost immediately over two or three years. So he's got a lot of his cash back and then he just earns what it earns. But I also think that, you know, so they he, he brings it up as a mistake, but they were like, they saw what Geico was playing for clicks on Google. And so that should have given them a heads up that Google was a real business that was earning yeah. real money. Worse than that, they saw for years, they said that the most impenetrable moat, if they had to pick any business, would have been a single newspaper town newspaper. Yeah. And you know, in a lot of ways, Google kind of represents a, a newspaper for yeah. the internet. On a, So it's this single town called the internet with uh, kind of a single newspaper in, in many ways. So, I mean, it was teed up for them. But I just mean, even though they didn't act on that, you can clearly see that he's thinking like, so he can see how one part of something is happening somewhere and how that's impacting something else. 100%. No, I think you're right. I mean, he recognizes the industry dynamics, like you said, with the railroad, the consolidation that was happening, less competition, um, probably, you know, prices firming up, better returns on capital, likely inbound, all that stuff. He's, I think he's pretty aware of of the cycles and competitive nature of the of the places where he operates, right? That's the key thing too, is that he never goes outside of where he thinks he can understand what the game is. I mean, BNSF is another good example of a, you know, railways were kind of hated for a long time before Buffett uh, did that. They were they were airlines before airlines. Yeah. Yeah. And they've you know, there were tech stocks in the whenever it was. Was it 20 somebody? Is that is that too late? Is it early? Yeah, it's too that? late. Railroads were like 1880s, 90s, uh, I think. So tech stocks then, and then they were fallen angels, or they were people buying them as distressed, distressed enterprises. Yeah, that's right. So it was, when they were, they were tech stocks in like Commodore Vanderbilt times, and then they were um, that they were unpacking the problems from that from all the overbuilding for years and years afterwards, and it was like a distressed play. Like that's why I think that's why Graham has so much on railway bonds in the first yeah. edition of security analysis because that was what was trading then but they've until buffett bought them they were regarded as being high capex low return businesses yeah basically you had to put money in just to stay in place kind of red queen effect type of businesses but something evidently has changed and how did he how did he determine that it had made that change I mean, he was right. He got it's a, like that. That trade was very similar to the one that he did with. Uh, I'm just blanking on it now. Chevron or what's the what's the oxy oxy oxy, where like a lot of the capital came out in, in, immediately after he bought it. Well, he got to control the capital, right at BNSF. Mm -hmm. Yes, oxy. They said that they wouldn't. Uh, but he was aware that they were, they were over. They were over. Um, capitalized he, he was aware the cash was going to come back out yeah yeah he had made that assessment that whatever he was putting into it he was getting some very substantial portion back and there was a there was a paper that there was a like a blog post that somebody wrote this is a while ago now it could be oh, i don't even know quite a long time ago now where they looked at how much had come out initially it was just jaw dropping how much he'd actually managed to extract from it in the first five years like it was de-risked in the first is five that years. right and then he was just free rolling after that yeah legend and i think you know oxy's the same run he doesn't control the capital allocation but he doesn't directly but he, to the uh yeah <laughs> here's a public proclamation of what you're going to be doing 
with that capital for the next 10 years. <laughs> Would, so oil and gas more cyclical than railways? I don't know. Well, I guess the my my question my answer would be another question would be like over what time frame? Well, over a shorter time frame, oil and gas is more cyclical than railways. I would believe so. That sounds right. But you think over a longer term, good growth in energy, persistent growth in energy? Uh, difficult question. <laughs> That's what we're here for. But... Yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna punt on that one. I don't have a good answer. Well, there's going to be consistent growth in energy. The question is, are the management teams who have never, ever been disciplined in the past going to remain disciplined? Absolutely. Not. And, and you are, and you're three years after massive goodwill impairments. Maybe that's the time to buy. Very possible. I don't think the odds offered today are the odds offered when the impairments came out. And I think if you're saying today you still want to buy it, then you have to say why you are going to be right longer than the market thinks so. And I it's think a, that if you think that the price is going to go up, you should look at the futures market because the equities put a lot of management and a lot of agency costs in between your core thesis and what what's actually going on. Say? Are you saying you're saying I have no idea. I'm just saying it's rather than the well, that's been true in gold, right? Gold's run, gold miners have not. Yeah, because you got people and incentives and they have to buy new equipment and you don't know what acquisitions they're going to do. And there's a thousand things that get in between yeah. the the direct representation of what you think versus the derivative of what you're buying. Yeah. Amen. A lot of slippage there, potentially. Which is not to say the equities can't work. I just think sometimes equity people come to equity conclusions because they're not asking the right questions. What, like trying to express a macro bit in one particular commodity by buying the equities? Yeah, it's a derivative play on the hmm. on the yeah. on the commodity. So if you have some sort of macro view on the commodity, you should buy the <laughs> buy the get the thing that gives you the most direct connection to what you're trying to express. If I was yeah. If I was being uncharitable, I would say that some possible of these very long duration growthy bets were in effect often interest rate bets uh, in disguise. And if that were the case, then maybe you'd be better off just playing, you know, treasury market levered up with that kind of stuff if you really wanted to. If you're going to make an interest rate bet anyway, maybe it's a better place to do it potentially. Yeah, yeah, or stay long that and short something else to try to hedge it out. I don't know. I mean, it's not what I do, but I, I agree with you. I mean, they're they were uber long duration bets, and if people got out, they made a whole lot of money. Smart move, even if it was dumb. Hard to know when to get out, and I know plenty of people who think that Ooh. there's yeah lots to come, and so they're trying to load up. I don't know. Oh, well, I'll find out who's right. There's there. Well, are there then my, my screens have started filling up with more oil energy anyway. I've noticed more around. Yeah. Well, Mr. I mean, they're earning a ton of money. Their ROEs right now are, you know, Chevron and Exxon. They're north of 20, 2025. 20, Helps when you have a goodwill impairment. It gets the equity down. Yeah. That's right. It's great. And it's the best way to earn. Throw some debt on there too. That I mean, it's a great way here. of shaking off sovereign debt to just have a little default. Come just back a, in with a clean balance sheet. Just a touch, just a little jubilee. <laughs> I send a lot of the bad debt to the Fed. Then the debt market uh, doesn't have to actually see it. The Fed does. That's probably it's not what so bad with a lot of stuff, huh? Yeah. 
Yeah, there are a few royalty companies around. Thanks, Braden. I, there are some interesting. I've had a few guys on the podcast, or back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> Not recently, but should we uh, yeah. do some vegetables? Let's do it. Okay. So, I um, as you know, I've been kind of like digging into inflation more, and especially the 1970s inflation, just because I think it's an interesting period, and I, I just want to be ready in the event that our today's inflation is not as transitory as maybe everyone is hoping. Uh, and you know, th this uh, piece is based on a, a research paper that was written by Alan Blinder. And if that name sounds a little familiar, it's uh, he was an econ professor at Princeton. He served on Clinton's Council of Economic Affa Advisors, and he was the vice chair of the Fed in the mid-1990s. So it's kind of been around. Um, but this was published in 1982. So it was like shortly thereafter of the 1970s. So I'm, my hope was that by going and looking for a little bit more contemporaneous accounts, that I might get a little bit more color, a little bit more uh, fidelity, as opposed to you know the, the longer the time passes from history, the more chance maybe that there's some retelling of the narrative of what happened. And I, I don't know. Like I was hoping that that might be the case. And you know, I was going to say actually, I kind of enjoy doing these type of reports a little bit more for the show than. Uh, the ones where I have to pretend to be the authority on like sperm whales and <laughs> spandrels and whatever the hell else. Because uh, that's, you know, I mean, I'm just making stuff up as I'm going. So uh, this is kind of more fun uh, or a little bit less, uh, a little less pedantic, I think. Uh, so <clears throat> we'll start off with like a little quiz. What do you guys think that the average inflation rate of the, the, the decade of the 1970s was per annum? The average. Uh... Average inflation rate. Eight. Okay, Billy. Yeah, I'd go right around there, maybe seven. All right, pretty good, fellas. We're at six point eight, okay. uh, and which at the time was very shocking because that was double the long run average before that, and triple the rate from the nineteen fifties and sixties. Uh, this little surprising data point here: the nineteen forties actually saw a pretty comparable average to the seventies, like at six point four percent. Is that pre or post World War Two? This is the entirety of the 1940s, so that would catch. Yeah, pre sorry. Post. <laughs> let me let me try that again. The answer is both. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that there was there was that was that was uh, potentially wartime inflation, right? Yes, very much so. Uh, so what's often missed in this is that the inflation during the 1970s was uneven around that that 6.8%. And there was a lot of variance in the price changes of all kinds of different stuff. I think sometimes we're we're all guilty of sort of painting with a brush of, you know, oh, inflation came in at 6.1%. Okay, well, that's that's this like very rolled up average, but the, within that is represented a huge colorful spectrum of different prices moving around. And um, I think sometimes we sort of forget about that. And this will be a little bit more germane in a second when we talk about what caused potentially the 1970s. Um, so, the uh, Blinder posits that there were there were basically like two inflations, uh, and he said that basically like it, at any given moment there's this normal or baseline inflation rate, which is actual inflation rate that gravitates towards uh, like fund fundamental economic forces. So basically, the difference between the growth rates of aggregate aggregate demand and aggregate supply. Um, now, you could kind of see like that he's sort of a macroeconomics guy when he starts talking about aggregate demand and aggregate supply, because I 
I don't, I'm not sure. <laughs> Do we really have a good handle on what those numbers even yeah, mean? Yeah, I don't ever, really but... know. What, I don't know what those ideas mean, honestly. <laughs> or I can't visualize those ideas. Yeah. So on the demand side, he says the weight of the historical evidence is that the growth rate of money is the dominant factor in the long run. So this is kind of what Milton Friedman said all along, which was that uh, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. Um, so there is some validity to that is what Blinder's saying. But there's also these other factors like fiscal policy that influence the growth rate of aggregate demand. Uh, on the supply side, the fundamental long run force is the trend rate of change of productivity uh, though occasionally there's these abrupt restrictions in aggregate supply, like supply shocks, they're called, uh, and that can dominate the supply picture over shorter periods. Okay, so um, he lays blame, like the, the key changes that happened in the 70s were rapid increases in food and energy prices and run-ups in mortgage interest rates. And those are what, and we'll talk about two like little periods that happened. There were two kind of pulses within the 70s that that uh, were caused, and, and we'll get into these a little bit more. Um, but so seventy three seventy four, uh, there were th there were three main culprits of what caused this inflation shock. Uh, and the first was a food shock. There was bad weather in the U.S. and worldwide, and it sent retail food prices soaring. It uh, plus twenty percent in seventy three, and plus twelve percent in seventy four for food prices alone. And these these food prices also got reflected in increase in wages, which results in this kind of upward spiral once it gets going. Um, so nineteen, uh, so and like that then, like I did a little bit of my own research on this because I wanted to think like, okay, how does this relate to today? Like, how much does the average U.S. household spend on food then versus now? Like, what's the intensity of disposable income and food? Uh, and maybe that'll tell us a little bit more of what we can expect. So. In 1960, the average U.S. household spent 17% of disposable income on food. 14% of that was at home expense, and then the other 3% was eating out. In the 70s, it was around 14%. So you already had like within 10 years, the concentration of food as, as your average spend had come down. Today, it's around 10%. Uh, so 5% at home and 5% eating out. So our our general intensity of food today is less than what it was for people in the 1970s. So even if we had this shock in food, it, the theoretical impact should probably be a little bit less than what they what they had in the 70s. All right, second up, energy shock. Uh, there was a solidification of OPEC in 1973 that led to the quadrupling of oil prices in a couple of months. Uh, and so the CPI energy component was plus 26% from September of 73 to March of 74. So you had a, a, this short period of time, like the CPI energy just like went through the roof. Uh, in 73, the U.S. petroleum consumption was 17.3 million barrels per day, and the refined petroleum products increased in price by about $5.50 per barrel. So all this is is just giving you a little bit of math about the increase in kind of the U.S.'s oil bill, like a, kind of an oil tax from, from OPEC, was roughly $35 billion, or at that time was about 2.5% of GNP. So we had this like kind of friction that came on in from increased oil prices, right? And in total, that attributed about three and a half percentage points to, uh, to an energy shock. So inflation, like three and a half percent of the of the total, of, well, three and a half percentage points of the total inflation was was due to energy. Uh, so then let's, I, I wanted to go back and rerun. All right, well, what's the energy intensity look like back then for the economy versus today? So in the 1970s, it was 14,000 BTUs per dollar. Uh, and this is like chain linked to, I think, uh, 
$2012. And today, the US energy intensity is about 5,000 BTUs per dollar of, of, GNP, of GDP, basically. So uh, less than half, uh, like it's, it's quite a bit, like it's almost cut in two thirds, actually, how much energy is required today to create the same amount of, of economic productivity. Uh, so it's kind of a testament to the efficiencies that we've seen, um, the mix probably from heavy manufacturing more to services, which has probably has a lower energy component, um, all of which would be to say that energy going out of control today in prices may not quite have as much of an impact as, as it did in the 70s, um, potentially. That's a hypothesis. Uh, and then the last thing for that 7374 pulse was wage and price controls. So in 1971, Nixon imposed peacetime mandatory controls over prices and wages with a three-month freeze, they called it. And after several phases of this, it was finally ended in 1974. So Blinder's research showed that the controls did nothing to the overall inflation. It basically just shifted the timing of it until that, like when it ended, and then you got this big spike up in, in wage price uh, inflation. So uh, there's probably a good lesson in there, in my mind, in when we control the prices of things, like maybe the price of money, are we really just shifting problems? Uh, are we actually helping? I don't know. Uh, I'll leave that to to all you uh, armchair economists. Uh, but so, so what, yeah, go ahead. Hey, sorry, did he, still, I, I don't want to. I don't want to cut you off if you got. Oh, we're still going, baby. Uh, keep, keep going. Keep going. Because so, I'm kind of interested. Like, what's the what 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 fills up the? What are we spending more money on now that we weren't then? But sorry, keep going. Yeah. Bean burrito. I don't know. Uh, so, <laughs> so the lifting of these controls caused a spike in inflation as prices caught up to where they kind of should have been the whole time without repression. So, um, seventy four to seventy six. So after that spike, it saw the rate of inflation tumble because food price increases had slowed. The OPEC shop wasn't repeated during that time period, and that kind of extra catch up time of the end of the price controls was completed. So seventy four or seventy six time frame, we saw. We saw that the inflation had kind of come back down under control, and that's that was the feeling at the time. Um, but then, in '77 to, to '80, that period, inflation steadily mounted from 6.8 in '77 to 14.8 during the first half of of 1980, and it was over 18 percent in the first quarter. Uh, and th so, this one came about then because again, food shocks. Uh, we had another bout of rising food prices, driven mostly by meat. Uh, and then we had all like what happened was that there was a decline in the production of beef at that time. And it was supposed to be offset by increases in pork and chicken, but bad weather, disease, and rising feed input costs led to these high meat prices uh, and kind of caught everyone off guard. Uh, we had another energy shock. This time, political turmoil in Iran led to oil prices jumping. And the energy component of the CPI went uh, was plus 56% from December of 78 to March of 80. So that time period, you, know, you had this big, another impulse upward of, of CPI pressure. And then in 78, uh, the US petroleum usage averaged 18.8 18 .8 million barrels per day. And the price was pushed up $821 per barrel. So to go back to that kind of oil tax, like how much was that extra friction was about $144 billion or six and a half percent of GNP. So pretty Ouch. big, pretty big bite, right? Like you're, you're going to feel that. And this is when we had, you know, people lining up in, you know, or, or gas shortages, uh, rationing where, you know, depending on what your license plate number was, you could go get in line on certain days. 
uh, very different world than what we live in today. Uh, and then the third thing that was different, different than the price controls of that first impulse, this is mortgage interest rates at that time. So they were quite stable through 77, holding at about 9% per annum. By the way, nine, Oof. like when, <laughs> who's ready for that in their in your real estate portfolio at 9%? Uh, I'll, I'll let you guys guess where prices end up if we have 9% uh, rates, but so then it ran up like you know a couple more percent from there, and it whipsawed around a bunch, um, and that ended up in 1980 contributing 4.6 percentage points of CPI increase, uh, just purely the basically like housing costs. So, in general, like I'll, I'll cut this down here because we're you know, I'm, I'm way over time and it's getting boring. But in general, like we saw food prices, energy prices. Price controls and and mortgage rates drove inflation in these impulses in the 70s. When I look at today and those similar, if it's those same potential uh, levers to to impact inflation, I'm not uh, totally sure that the economy hasn't changed to the point where that maybe that those maybe it's going to be something else is what I'm thinking. Like maybe we need to keep our eyes open for what it might be that could hurt that could hurt us from inflation uh, that would be different than than that time period. You, you think it has. We, we rely less on those things now. So an impact in them has less of an impact on the economy or a big move up in them has less of an impact on the economy. I mean, theoretically, that makes sense to me. If it's less of a concentration into the inputs of what it takes to create our economy, then ch price changes in that flowing through should have less of an impact. The rates now seem to be much, much lower than they were then. But this is to what extent were the rates sort of a res the, the rates went up through the seventies? I mean, I, I I remember it being like that that they peak in like eighty two, right? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. What, the what rates definitely. Oh, I mean, would a federal funds rate peak at like seventeen or something? Yeah, I, th I thought it was something. I thought I was going to say eighteen actually, but that just sounded crazy high. But if you go from like even paying a nine percent rate on your house. And then 18%, I mean, that's a 50% cut, right? Roughly. Yeah. That's a lot of, it's a lot of interest. Yikes. It's hard to see how we get to there now, right? Because there's so much, so debt. much government debt. You find out how independent the Fed is then, right? Because the Fed will be like the BAJ, it just has to manage the government debt as well. Yeah. I don't know how you, I don't know how you eat up so much of the of the pie and interest expense with the rate at that level it just seems untenable i don't know what does it take to reset it what what does it take so it doesn't matter like lower house prices lower stock market price like lower market lower, lower price on the index uh to reset all the debt or reset well, what the yeah. inflation if these rates are that high if inflation's running that high, you can't have prices where they are. I don't know. Better have cash, even though you're getting hit. <laughs> but if everything's going to go down 50, 70%, who cares if you lose an eight a year? Yeah. Rates were higher <laughs> in the 80s, but only three to four times annual wage, not 10 times like it is now. Yeah. One of the guys that I read, one of the guys that I follow on YouTube has, he says, San Francisco, the median house price, it's come off a lot. It was like 1.35 at the peak, and it's like might be under one now. 
but it still compares with like the median salary there is $102,000 a year. So you're still at 10 times the median salary. So either the salary has to go up. The average for the country, I think, is like three or something. Yeah, that's that's a lot. The, 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 there's some interesting demographic change where as the boomers leave the workforce and Generation X has to take over because there are so many fewer gen- people in Generation X than there are boomers, they're going to have to take on more responsibility, bigger roles, and as a result, they're going to have to get paid more. So maybe that's the way that salaries go up and house prices just stagnate for a decade. I mean, house prices have already been stagnant for a little while. If you look, because we're at the rate that we're coming back down, we're we're going backwards in time. Like we're almost. Where are we back to 2021? We're not quite <laughs> pre-pandemic yet. Some markets are getting close to pre-pandemic. Huh. Others, like California, still got a long way to go. Even I mean, coming part of, of the reason that some of these businesses may trade at super high multiples, I'm just just theorizing. And if you look at Costco, they've got their debt is termed out. You know, 2027, 2030, 2032, yeah. pull up charter. Tell me what that debt trade's at if if rates are at 20. They're gonna they they will have shorted yeah. debt by issuing a ton at the exact right time and they'll be able to buy it in for pennies on the dollar. Mm. And if you have a resilient business and you're thinking of all these things and you're really worried about a number of outcomes, <clears throat> some of these businesses may have a lot more things at their disposal than you know. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I just, I, I accept that I know so little now that I have no default position other than to assume that the market's not irrational. And the, and the, I, I think Charlie would tell me to index and just try to articulate why it might make sense. And, and I think some of this stuff might make a lot of sense. It's, I do not think we're going to have a great time for investment performance. I don't see why we're entitled to it. I mean, I, I, I haven't really changed my tune on that in three years. Is your default position the fetal position? <laughs> no, I'm not. I mean, I'm not very scared. I mean, I, you know, I own assets. I'm not hyper levered. Uh, I think I own quality stuff. I don't think that I paid too much. I think, you know, but I probably have endowment bias. Like, I, you know, what are you going to do? And I, and I am going to try to have some sort of cash in case the crash comes. But like, outside of that, I, I just sit here and wonder why I do anything active. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think there are periods of time that are <clears throat> behoove you to not get too active. Like just kind of let the boat go and and then you come back with a different set of cards that makes easier to untangle, easier to figure out what the smart thing to do is. In the meantime, hold something reasonably high quality, hopefully don't overpay for it and just be be happy with a smaller return and not trying to get it all at every every step of the game. I saw a good, uh, this is from um, John Rotonti, Mike Wilson on the death zone. Have you heard this? You guys heard this? Uh, he says, he's talking about uh, the low in October versus now. Okay. And he says, um, when stocks started rising in October, they had a much lower valuation with a price to earnings ratio of 15 and an equity risk premium of 270 basis points. So the equity risk premium is the difference between the expected earnings yield and the yield on safe treasuries. Higher number, meaning that you're being compensated more for the investments in stocks. Just this is this is me. This is not, this is not the article. Um, that equity risk premium has been tested extensively and it's not predictive at all. 
you're more off. You're, you're better <laughs> off just predict looking at the absolute rate of return, the absolute return in equities, not adjusted for like interest rates. But looking that's at still, actual earnings yield instead that's of the Fed model. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you look at the earnings yield to, to treasury right. difference, which doesn't really make any sense. But when you test it, that that's the answer. And um, but it's still regarded. That's the Fed model. That's how they do it. Yeah. Um, by December, however, the air started to thin with price to earnings down to 18 and the equity risk premium down to 225 basis points. He says, in the last few weeks of the year, we lost many climbers who pushed further ahead in the death zone. <laughs> Investors began to move faster and more energetically, talking more confidently about a soft landing in the US economy. As they have reached even higher levels, there is now talk of a no landing scenario, whatever that means. Such are the tricks the death zone plays on the mind. One oh, starts man. to see and believe in things that don't exist. That's a great analogy. Back to Wilson, who says the price to earnings ratio is now 18.6, equity risk premium at 155 basis points, meaning we are in the thinnest air of the entire liquidity-driven secular bull market that began back in 2009. By the way, that denominator on the price earnings is Coming not down going in the, in the favorable yeah. direction right now. He says the bear market rally that began in October from reasonable prices has turned into a speculative frenzy based on a Fed pause pivot that isn't coming. Now, I admit that that is my bias too, so I enjoyed that a lot. But <laughs> that's how I feel. I felt like the cheap stuff from October through to through January, but then like February's just gone bananas. Yeah. By the way, Bill, you know when you you're talking about termed out debt, why? Why did we, as the U.S. government, not issue hundred-year bonds on? What do you think we would have Didn't had? Argentina to... do it. Yeah, Austria. How did Argies get it away? Austria How did, did we yeah. not push out our debt into these super long-dated? I we, we probably would have been like a two or three percent. I don't know, but. How much smarter would we be looking right now? How pretty would we be sitting as opposed to all this debt that's going to be rolling off in the next whatever? What's the average now? I think somewhere like five five years or something for all the US Treasury complex. Someone correct me if I'm wrong on that, but I think it's somewhere around there. It's short term. It's all it is. coming due and it, it's not going to be at anywhere near two or 3%, I don't think most likely to be <laughs> to be rolled over. What a missed opportunity. It's crazy, yeah. right? Look at oh. Berkshire. I'm not. I'm not shocked that Trump's government didn't take advantage of that. I don't think very highly of him as a businessman. You would have thought anybody who could get cheap money, though, he might have been the guy that would have seen that. I suppose. Sorry for triggering some listeners. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, sorry to divert us. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I mean. A lot of this, a lot of this, just kind of, you know, I mean, I, I, either we're gonna go down or we're not. But if we do, I, I think, uh, I think people are gonna want cash. I don't think you want to hide in any risk asset. Mm. Yeah, hard to know. This is bad news for that that guy who uses it as his contra, and he's been heavy in the puts. <laughs> That guy's just giving the market He's got a lot money. Of, I don't really care. A lot of cognitive dissonance now. It's hard, it's hard <laughs> to make money on those puts, to be fair. Yeah. I mean, he won't. If he makes it once and he does it 30 times, he'll blow all his money. It's fine. It's an inevitability on a long enough time horizon. I hope he's right once. It'll be a fun ride. Yeah, That's the problem. Everybody gets the same idea at the same time. The market's overvalued, therefore buy puts. Hey, puts are overvalued too. That's, that's one of the problem. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, look, the one of the benefits is he benefits from uh, a lot of these yield enhancement strategies that systematically sell, you know, calls and puts. So maybe maybe he actually is buying a structurally mispriced option if it's some of the front months. But mm. I'm not sure if if he can't articulate that, then I don't really care what he has to say. I think if you've got good cash flowing assets and you've got a management team that is prepared to buy back stock, then you're going to be okay through this period. You should be looking to buy risk assets. Having said that, I don't think you want to be in the index. I think you want to be really careful being in big stuff that's done really well because, uh, you know, that's just had a cycle that favored it and it's probably at stretch valuations and we go into a cycle that won't favor it and the valuations will collapse, which is what happened in the early 2000s. It was 15 years of really, really good companies doing really, really well and the stock's going nowhere. Walmart, Oof. Microsoft, you know, yeah. take your pick. Yeah. So why do you it's think true. why do you think Munger thinks the index outperforms everybody over the long term net of fees and net of taxes? Like that, like it's not like he doesn't know long, this. Long time horizon. Behaviors. Yeah. For the, I mean, that's going to be true for most people. Like most people are going to be wired to try to Dance sell at the and bottom out. and buy at the top. Right. You know, they're looking at price action as the way that they're making decisions rather than trying to buy on fundamentals. Like I do think that's an advantage being buying on fundamentals. Speaking of uh interesting little piece out this morning from Verdad on what's the long run expected return for for equities versus bonds and ended up pulling some more data from this uh researcher named Edward Macquarie. I wasn't familiar with him, but the number they came in with was more like 5%. Um Five to six percent, basically. Uh, For real, I'm not if sure. It's probably nominal. It's probably nominal. Uh, I saw that chart too. You see, where does that? Where did you? Where did you eyeball the divergence to begin? Uh, nineteen forty-two or something. I thought it was earlier than that, but yeah, <laughs> around about that time. Bonds got crushed and equities kept on going. Yeah, that's right. I don't know. That's um, kind of an interesting piece, though. Kind of, I think I'd be wondering about uh, current pension fund projections yeah. and what your liabilities actually look like versus your assets out into the future when you're trying to match these things. And if if you're plugging in a five percent versus an eight percent, that's a or more. Uh, that's a pretty big delta that could leave a, a reasonably sized hole in your balance sheet if you were if you were in charge of a p- pension. Have you seen there's been a few tweet threads going around? I won't mention the VC fund in particular, but or the firm in particular. Name but, names, Toby. Oh, just well, this was about A16, okay. but I've also seen other ones about it's a public tweet. It's not, and I don't have any view. I'm just I don't have any insight. I'm just relaying what they said. They said that a lot of these VC firms towards the end were raising a lot of funds that they were plowing in very late stage, particularly into things like crypto and so on, which have had, you know, massive drawdowns. So they're going to, they're, they're going to look a little bit like, you know, ARC, which is public. So people can see what that looks like, mm. where they're going to be smoked in VC and they haven't been really investing in early stage. You know, I know that VC is a little bit more, VC is not angel. It's not necessarily the first check in the door or the second check in the door. It's a little bit further down the road than that, but it's still pretty early stage where yeah, they should be in earlier stage companies, not in sort of things that are just about to go public. But their idea was that because returns were so low, 
they could get into these things that were later stage and about to go public and put in a big check. And so they were selling that idea to a lot of these pension funds and a lot of the endowments. So you're saying that the that outperformance, that part that the that the pension funds and these large pools of capital were depending upon by having these alternative assets basically might have blown up in their face. Yeah, very much so. Just when they put the most money in to hide from from public market volatility. Yeah. Oh, as if you can't necessarily make risk disappear. Is this this is what you're telling me? I mean, we got we've got Corey on here. It can't be. It can't Corey, be, what's uh, the answer here? Come can't on. be destroyed. Transmuted. Yeah, I wonder how much of that is going on because th those marks seem to be. I I know that there are rules around make uh, around setting those marks, so it's not like it's completely marked to, but it is still marking your own homework. I disagree with some of the public marks as well, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, of time. course, that's why I'm buying. That's why yeah. I'm buying them when I disagree. If you didn't, you're doing But then it does wrong. annoy me a little bit that they don't immediately correct after I buy them. Yeah. I appreciate that it's going to take a little, you got to take three to five years. But Cliff Asness made that joke pretty well in the when he gave the talk at Columbia about like, well, I, I expect it to be inefficient. That's the whole point of me buying it. But then how, how dare it get more inefficient on me once <laughs> yeah. I buy it? This is outrageous. That's how I feel. <laughs> exactly right. Outrageous. Hey, Corey's on. He, he, risk cannot be destroyed, only transformed. Thank you. Good to have you here, Corey, to correct us like that. Stage words. I don't want chat GPT. I just want Hofstein on the other side of a, Ooh. Of, a of a chat window. Chaff AI. Think about that, Corey. Billion dollar idea. For free. <laughs> I'll take 3%. That's all I want. 1% for the idea. So how are you feeling, guys? Positive? Uh, yeah, I think nothing changes here. I mean, it's still the same game that, that it's always been, which is know what you own. Try to own reasonably good businesses if you can. Don't overpay for them. Lower your expectations. Uh, stay within your circle of confidence. Don't get too excited. You're not as smart as the market will make you feel. You're not as stupid as it will make you feel. And uh, play your own game. Ignore the crowd. It's all the same. That's good advice. More for Agreed. myself. I'm just telling myself these things, not you Yeah, guys. no, I'm only ever talking to myself too. <laughs> this whole podcast don't is just mostly it. to myself. Don't do it. <laughs> yeah. I, I do think those are the best Twitter accounts. Like that's that's how to do a good Twitter account. Basically write to yourself. Mm. All my quarterly letters are basically just missives to myself of like, dude, you know better. You're about to do something stupid. Here, write it up so that you don't do that. Yeah, that's a good idea. <sighs> yeah, we haven't talked about Tesla today. Has it done anything? Had a little recall. Who cares? Have sorted that Who out over cares? the air. Well, it's the biggest stock in the market. Most highly traded stock in the market. Yeah, most highly funny. traded security. It is. Um, I'm all set out on a number of topics. That is one of them. Hmm. Yeah, I just can't. I just don't understand it. I it's going to be the it. the poster child for something. I don't know what yet, but for something. I feel yeah, like... I mean, it already is. People have made life changing wealth if they've sold. Like, I mean, you know, that's that that is a stock that works or has worked. Does it work from here? I, why would I have any insight? I haven't had any insight that's worth listening to yet. Congrats to those who did, though. That's fair play to them. Word. 
Yeah. I, I mean, I'd much rather put everything in that than some theoretically cheap stock that doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> that, that, that's a way to actually change your life. Tell me the next one that's that. Oof. Yeah. There's a whole market full of them. I don't know if you know. I know yeah. a lot of them. Yeah. That's my whole strategy. 